WCNC Charlotte. This is Flashpoint. Thanks for joining us here on Flashpoint. I'm Ben Thompson. Well, folks, it is a big year for politics here in the Carolinas and across the country. From the president all the way down to local representatives, voters will be weighing in on the direction of our country and our state. And in a moment, two political experts in the Carolinas will share their predictions for the upcoming year. But first, crime in Charlotte taking center stage this week after chaos erupted in Uptown during New Year's celebrations. A suspect behind bars after randomly shooting five people. It's just the latest act of violence at Romeo Bearden Park in the past year. And now one Charlotte leader is calling for a task force to take a deeper look at crime in the Queen City. Joining us now is Charlotte City Councilman Tark Bakari. Councilman, welcome back to Flashpoint. Thank you. Uh, so you're calling for a special task force to tackle crime. What about this shooting on, on New Year's Eve was for you the, the final straw to push for change? Well, I mean, it's it's not that it's the final straw. I've kind of I've been at the final straw as, as have a lot of people in Charlotte for a while now. It was an opportunity that enraged a lot of us where all eyeballs were pointing at something again. And and to be honest, this was this was a significant not just for the uh, for the injuries that occurred, um, but the fear that, you know, it's uptown. This is a, a significant part of town that we've been trying to revitalize for a while now. And, and whether it's economic development and events that we're trying to bring there or just safety overall, this is a terrible, terrible storyline for that. And I think people are just kind of got to a moment of a flashpoint of like, you know, I'm kind of fed up. And that's when I kind of jumped in and said, you know, this is an opportunity for me to not just lay out, you know, he, here's what I think we should do in the form of this task force, which isn't a great name for it because it, it is the opposite of the bureaucracy that a lot of people think of that I have in my head here for that. But it's an opportunity for, for me to hopefully in kind of a new way here, uh, get my colleagues to coalesce around it and, and get other members of leadership throughout the state and the region here to all jump on board so we can do it as a team together. Cause that's really the only way it's going to get done. And, and, and what sort of feedback, what sort of reception has this idea um, gotten among your city council colleagues? Yeah. So, well, I started right away um, with just kind of reaching out to them. This is new Tark here, right? Old Tark just goes out there and says the things he thinks exactly need to happen. And then all of a sudden, you know, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. I, at the same time, reached out to all my colleagues and kind of said, listen, here, I'd like to talk to you about this. This isn't a baked plan yet. It's the beginning of one. Love your insight. So I started that dialogue at the same time. And this has all happened in 48 hours. Um, at the same time, uh, I got a call from the district attorney who, uh, one, gave me some great insights into some assumptions I might have had that weren't correct, which is exactly what we need to do. And then he committed to uh to being a part of it then i heard from members of the general assembly who also were like hey you know you don't normally hear general assembly folks and want to help and get involved in a charlotte issue that often so that was great um but that other than that and the community feedback that coalesced to uh yesterday a two-hour session in the mayor's office with me the mayor manager uh and council members malcolm graham and victoria watlington really hashing out okay what would we do and and came up with a great initial game plan of engaging council, engaging the community and starting what I think the most important thing to this task force approach is whether we call it that in the future or not, is setting a foundation of data to guide us for measurable results. And best case scenario, nine months from now, 12 months from now, what will this task force for lack of better name, what will it accomplish? 
Yeah, I, I think that, and we talked about this at length yesterday, and, and I think you'll see two things. One, you'll see the community itself, leaders, not just on council and the DA and, and the chief and others, but in, in you know, the community, in the, uh, the, the religious community, all these, these areas coming together, that they will have united in a way, hopefully, that we haven't seen before in the topic of public safety um, to create concepts that lead, uh, that, that lead us towards a long-term solution where we need to go. And there'll be some short-term wins through that. But then we will measurably see differences, not just in violent crimes, but in property crimes. These are the leading indicators that I see. And, and I hope the final thing that we'll see is this is not a focus that just says we're getting them off the streets, which is clearly a main priority for me in this revolving door of our broken criminal justice system that brings folks back out there committing the same crimes. But it, it doesn't just stop there when they're incarcerated or off the streets. It follows them to whatever those specific paths are, whether it's workforce training or mental health help or, you know, coaching and mentoring for a lot of youth, which is a huge theme in what we're seeing in the data. It follows them to the end of a successful outcome. Uh, in, in this case, the only problem is the suspect didn't really have uh, much of a criminal record. And, and, and his mom even seems to be involved, came to court saying he had several jobs, that he was a good kid. Um, how would you... How would a task force or any law prevent suspects like this in Uptown? Yeah, and, and, and this is a great point going back to where we started. It wasn't really this singular event, right, that, that bothered me. Uh, it, you know, it wasn't even a, a few weeks ago, the four 13 and 14-year-olds in a joyride that when they got arrested had 84 charges combined amongst them, 13 and 14 years old. But if we look at that night, itself it was it was the the anecdotal stories i heard from people that were there of what happened before that shooting folks really the energy building fights breaking out like and these are a lot of kids in, involved in that stuff too like th this is the kind of thing that makes people not want to go uptown uptown as it exists now didn't happen overnight yeah. eastland mall didn't happen overnight north lake mall didn't happen overnight public safety is directly correlated not just to quality of life but our business community and our economic vitality here a lot of people talk about guns and the prevalence of guns and your your colleagues up in the general assembly the republicans are not going to want to talk about guns uh what do you think is their role in this so i one i think the general assembly is going to play a very major role in this um we have laws that uh as it relates to the accountability of parents with these kids who are out there um, that um, that that we need to make sure is understood. It, accountability first starts in the home, and and there's a laundry list of other things from funding for our DA to our uh, electronic records and things like that. When it comes to the gun safety thing, th this really bothers me a lot because th there is a pragmatic discussion to be had here. But everyone knows right away when one side of the aisle says thoughts and prayers and the other side of the aisle says gun safety all we're doing is holding up in different corners my goal is to to not pay any attention to that is our critical path at all whatsoever however once we're in good faith and operating across the aisle in a nonpartisan way getting the things we need i think that is we're in a safe way not trying to have one side win and another side lose but both be able to win for us to have a couple conversations dr Picari, charlotte city councilman Councilman, thanks for coming on Flashpoint as always. Thank you. All right, have a good one. Next on Flashpoint, it's a big year for elections across the country. 
Next, predictions for the new year as the race for president in the Carolinas heats up. Welcome back to Flashpoint. This weekend, we are 10 months away from the general election. But before we reach November, there are several twists and turns expected in this pivotal election year. Joining us now, two people who know a lot about politics, Catawba College professor Michael Bitzer, as well as Winthrop University professor Scott Huffman. Gentlemen, welcome back. As I say, uh, two of the smartest people I know. So anytime that we can have you on, I, I always learn a lot and I know our viewers do um, as well. Uh, let's begin with the primaries. They're fast approaching with the Republican Iowa caucus set to take place January 15th, uh, then followed by the South Carolina primaries. Um, Professor Huffman, I'll start with you. Uh, I assume there's, there, there's no hope anyone besides Donald Trump is going to emerge victorious from these two early contests. Then what would you see as the, the second headline after that? Well, the, the main things coming out of Iowa are going to be how much Donald Trump wins by. Uh, you're looking to see uh, Haley, maybe DeSantis, but Haley outperform uh, her expectations and then taking that into New Hampshire. Folks have made a whole lot about Nikki Haley refusing to say that the cause of the Civil War was slavery is absolutely not going to hurt her in the Republican primary um, or the, the Republican caucus in Iowa. Uh, it may make a few independents in New Hampshire feel uncomfortable, but again, it's Donald Trump's game. She needs to outperform there. Uh, the big story would be if Trump comes out with a, a notably less than 50%, even though a win is expected. Coming back to Nikki Haley's home turf, a big story will be if DeSantis continues to slide and Nikki Haley uh, absorbs all of the non-Trump oxygen in the room, uh, then you can expect to see where it goes from there. I don't expect her to drop out in case of a loss in South Carolina unless it is a devastating loss. Uh, I think she'll clamber on a bit. All right, Mr. how about you? What do you see as the, the non-Trump uh, storyline coming out of the next month or so? I mean, I would agree with everything that, that my colleague has said. I, I think, you know, it, the, the determinative factor is who is number two to Donald Trump, ultimately. And can the non-Trump Republican vote have enough impact to have some power, some influence on this race? The way that I currently see Republican Party politics, this is the party of Donald Trump. And I don't see how with the commanding leads he has in the polls, it would be a fundamental rewrite of everything we know about presidential primary politics to see Donald Trump either stumble or fail to get the nomination at this point. So I think really where is this second group going to go amongst the Republican Party politics and can Nikki Haley do anything to try and eat into Donald Trump's lead and make her more of an influence rather than Trump basically taking everything over and claiming the nomination. Let me ask you both about the big what if in the room and that is a few months down the road, um, Mr. Trump is um, facing a variety of different charges across a variety of different jurisdictions. Uh, Bitzer, how does the party plan for that? 
I don't hear a plan B at this point in any in any of the conversations about uh, what happens if Donald Trump is convicted in one of these lawsuits, or if for some reason the U.S. Supreme Court decides, no, he can't be on the ballot. I don't know where plan B becomes, and then chaos erupts. Maybe that becomes the opening that either Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis enters into for a more powerful position, but at this point in time, I think Republicans are certainly fine with their front runner being somebody who will claim the nomination and is under the cloud of potential conviction in one or perhaps multiple venues. Where we go from this, I don't know. And I don't think anybody does because we haven't had this as precedent in any of our political history. Huffman, the, the timeline is not working in favor of Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis right now because because you could still be a few months away from any sort of convictions in, in the Trump cases. So what do they do? Well, you know, it, the, the confusing thing is what are the requirements to be president? Everybody knows you have to be 35 years old. You have to be a natural born citizen. You have to live in the U.S. for 14 years. <laughs> now, the 14th Amendment added uh, a clause that says you can't have committed insurrection or aid and abetted anybody who committed insurrection and still be an officer of the United States, civilian or military. So what does that mean? Who gets to decide uh, you know, whether or not insurrection was uh, happened? Uh, Colorado has said, yes, Donald Trump committed insurrection, but he hasn't been found guilty of a crime. 14th Amendment doesn't say you have to be found guilty of a crime. So where is that going to go even if he is found guilty? Most importantly, as Dr. Bitcher pointed out, it's going to go through the court system. It's going to go to the Supreme Court. Right now we have a dominant uh, conservative supermajority on the Supreme Court that is likely to go Trump's way. It is very possible that we will have a presidential candidate who has been convicted of crimes related to insurrection activity, and it will be an election like absolutely no other in the United States. Uh, I am waiting to see what when it will come before the Supreme Court, but as you just pointed out, that timeline does not go in Nikki Haley's favor. It is slowing down, not speeding up. Yeah, Bitzer, what do you think will happen with the, with the Colorado and, and Maine cases? I literally have no idea. I think the court could go in a variety of fact, uh, different ways. I mean, the one of the questions posed is, is the president an officer under the 14th Amendment? And by my read, and I believe by my colleagues' read and other scholars, yes, anybody who holds a civil office and who swears an oath to the U.S. Constitution is bound by the 14th Amendment's Section 3. The question also becomes, what is an insurrection? Colorado State Supreme Court defined it, and it holds to what Donald Trump did on January 6, 2021. But this is a case that is, I could see, a political question where the courts will kick it out. That would create even more chaos because some states may take him off the ballot. Other states may choose to take Joe Biden off the ballot. We could have real confusion in this election year, and that is, I think, the absolute last thing that we need Professor Huffman, uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris expected to make a trip uh, to your neck of the woods next week. Um, why is the Biden administration making such a big push in South Carolina in a largely 
non-competitive primary. Well, South Carolina essentially made Joe Biden president. It is, uh, he, kind of, he owes it to Jim Clyburn. Joe Biden was not ahead in the polls coming into uh, you know, the, the, the 2020 primary elections. Uh, you got to remember, the Democratic Party had been looking at Joe Biden running for president since 1988 and going, yeah, you know what, no thanks. Um, and yeah, he became a very popular vice president to Barack Obama, but he was not, by any stretch of the imagination, uh, the foregone conclusion until he comes to South Carolina. And African-American voters uh, who are the crown jewel uh, of the South Carolina, in fact, black women are the crown jewel of the South Carolina Democratic uh, presidential primary. It wasn't until Jim Clyburn endorsed Joe Biden that the African-American vote lined up behind him. And you have to prove in the Democratic presidential primaries that you can get the African-American vote to turn out for you because that's a major coalition of a presidential victory for Democrats. And so this is payback. Uh, final question for you, Mr. Bitzer. Um, this will be the first election with new maps here in North Carolina for the General Assembly as well as con uh, congressional seats. Um, are these the maps that we're going to be stuck with or is it going to change 10 times every two years like it has over the last decade? Welcome to North Carolina politics right. since 1990, needless to say. Uh, I think these maps will be through the 24 elections. Uh, even though we have had past challenges uh, in court over maps, they have typically tended to hold because we've had candidate filing. We're coming up on the primary ballots for mail-in ballots will be sent out here relatively soon. So I think the court will say, you know what, we'll use these maps, but we will continue to hear the legal challenges on the racial gerrymandering dynamics at play. All right, Michael Bitzer, Scott Huffman. Gentlemen, thank you for coming on, we appreciate it. Coming up on Flashpoint, leaders promising transformational economic change in Burke County. Next, the plans for a massive new industrial site. Welcome back to Flashpoint. It's a proposal so big, leaders are calling it a quote, mega site. In Burke County, developers hope to turn nearly 1,400 acres of land into an industrial campus. WCNC Charlotte's Julia Kaufman has the details on the plan and why neighbors are pushing back. Developers say a massive plot of land near Morganton is a rare and transformative opportunity for the entire region, but hundreds of neighbors have signed a petition against it. Near Interstate 40 and US 70 is nearly 1,400 acres of land that Burke Development Inc. and its partners want to turn into an industrial campus. Knowing how few sites there are that have all these attributes left, not only in North Carolina, but the Southeast, uh, makes this site really val valuable. President of BDI, Alan Wood, says the site could be manufacturing or a data center. It really is possible you could get both on a site this large. The plan is already getting public and private funding, including more than $35 million from the state. I'm concerned about the pollution as fast as the water and, and just destroying the environment around here. The project is called the Great Meadows Megasite. It's south of Lake James and crosses over Muddy Creek. Nearly 600 people, including Dudley Green, have signed a petition opposing it. We moved from West Charlotte up here in 1960 to get away from the growth. 
and now they're trying to, to turn this place into a parking lot. It's ridiculous. I mean, it's crazy. Wood says at least 95 acres of wetlands will be preserved on the property, but Green is still concerned. Burke County is sold as nature's playground. You don't put a factory in the middle of nature's playground. Wood says they have not decided what type of business will fill the site if it's approved by county leaders. The Burke County Planning Board is set to consider the project's rezoning petition at the end of March. In Morganton, Julia Kaufman, WCNC Charlotte. More Flashpoint after this. Welcome back to Flashpoint, folks. Come interact with us on Instagram, X, and Facebook. If there's something you want us to cover here on Flashpoint, let us know. And as always, remember to listen and subscribe to our podcast. You can find it wherever you get yours. And we'll see you back here next weekend.